you're welcome to black royalty radio um so leo i was just telling you about the uh logo it becomes a great logo for black royalty because of this idea of revitalizing your mind right have you ever heard of elephants in um in, in the circus you ever see an elephant in the circus yeah. and wonder like how it got there or whatever i mean a couple of times unfortunately <laughs> right so i didn't know that and i found out that uh the baby elephants, they chain them to these chains that they're not strong enough to break out of. So an elephant's greatest uh, strength in its memory becomes its greatest weakness because it remembers a time when it couldn't break this chain. Yep. And so for this adult elephant, it's held by this chain that can't actually hold it physically, but mentally it's stuck there because it remembers a time when it wasn't strong enough to break past this chain. So the idea of black royalty is like revitalizing the mind of educators of color so that we can revitalize the minds of the the students that we teach i love that right and so with black royalty what we're trying to do is support recruit and retain educators of color right um and revolutionary educators of, of that and as a historian i know when i say revolution you kind of hear uh malcolm x talk about revolution as bloodshed right and i want to get into that idea of how we fight against the system while we teach and educate the future of the system or of whatever is coming next, right? And so I want to use this this opportunity to um, kind of get your story and get into your thoughts on education. So we're going to go from how you became who you are, kind of your, your uh, upbringing, um, and then we'll get into your thoughts on education and where we are, where we need to go, and kind of how we got here. Right. Sounds good. So tell me about you as a student. Were you did you always know that you wanted to be a teacher? Um, I knew that I wanted to be a history teacher when I was in the fifth grade. Really? Why yeah. is that? Um, elementary school. I had a teacher. His name was Mr. Matta. Um, cool dude. Pretty old. I mean, he was like a, a, a Korean War vet. Like, that's how Ooh. old he was. OK. And so, like, we didn't do very much in fifth grade. It was a lot of fun that we had in class. But like the, the basic things that we did is that, like, we'd spend the morning part of the day, like, doing some math stuff. Mm -hmm. And then like right after lunch, we would play chess. Like that's literally like how he, like how he helped teach us math and okay. strategy and that sort of thing. We'd go outside and play softball because he was big into PE and big into physical health. And so like we would spend like an hour and a half outside playing softball. And I mean everything from like, we all had to bring on gloves. Wow. He taught us how to warm up. We had to make a, a, a lineup. Okay. Um, we did our own like batting percentages. Like did we go <laughs> three for seven, two for five? We also did like on fielding percentages. So like mm -hmm. I knew how to do fielding percentages back in like the 90s, which is ridiculous. Wow. Um, and then after that, like we would come back in and uh, all hot and sweaty, have some water, whatever else. And when we came in, he would close the blinds. He would light some candles. And after that, he started to tell us like different stories about the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812 and stuff like that. And just the way he could tell a story, mm -hmm. the way that he could kind of like augment his voice, the way he could hold like a, our attention mm -hmm. and, and the passion which he spoke, like I knew that I wanted to be able to do that. Yeah. And so like I can literally remember coming home one day and telling my mom, she was on the phone, she was making something on the stove and I remember telling her like, mom, I know what I want to do when I grow up. And she was like, and she like kind of put the phone away and she's like, what, what do you want to do? And so <laughs> I was like, I want to be a history teacher. And she's like, oh, okay, that's great. And after that, like started talking on the phone and doing her thing and I was like, okay. But yeah. like, that's that's when I knew. And so even going throughout all of high school, going into college, like I didn't have to mess around with majors and all that other stuff. Awesome. Like I knew it was always history. I always knew exactly what I wanted to do. And so uh, I didn't have some of the growing pains of trying to pick, pick pick out majors and yeah. pick out different careers. Like I knew that's what I wanted to do. So you took specific steps kind of all throughout high school and through college 
to like gear yourself towards this uh, career in teaching? I think in college I did, but in high school, like, I mean, I didn't really know what I didn't know. I just knew yeah. that I wanted to teach history. Yeah. So I just took all the courses that, you know, okay. college counselors and everybody else like told me to take, whether it was English or take history. They thought that like getting into college, like I should probably take some AP courses. So I take AP government, AP US okay. history, um, AP world history, stuff like that. Okay. But um, I didn't know that that was like expected in order to get into college and kind of advance my, right. my academic studies and all that other stuff. Like, yeah, I just didn't really know what I didn't know. Yeah, I just knew true. that I like history and I like taking classes, so that's what I did. When did I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but it's okay. When did you uh, get your get in front of your first classroom? Man, um, my first history classroom. I was 25 years old. Okay. It was 2005. It was literally like a couple days after Katrina hit. Okay. And okay. so uh, earlier that summer, um, I'd been an athletic director from like the age of like 20 to like 25 yeah. at my school. And that summer, our history teacher decided to go ahead and take the, the principal job at our school. So it left open okay. like that, that, that history position. And they knew that I'd always wanted to teach. I'd done some subbing and stuff like that. Uh -huh. So like the kids were familiar with me. They knew I knew the content. And so uh, they asked me to apply for the job. I applied for it, interviewed once, got the gig. And go. so I spent all summer kind of boning up and trying to figure out, like, what I wanted to teach and whatnot. And, um, yeah, Katrina hit a couple of days before that. Yeah. And I knew that, like, everything that I was getting ready to teach sixth grade history was kind of out the window for the first couple of days. Mm. And so, like, Katrina and, like, the, the, the ways in which, um, you know, that event, that, that natural disaster happened was our first conversations. Right. So you've always had this understanding from the beginning that, like, current events outweighed your content um i knew that that one did okay and, and and i didn't know like moving forward how that was gonna work yeah but i knew that that one did that one kind of hit close to home like like my mom's side of the family is from louisiana mm -hmm. um not even necessarily from new orleans but a little a little further north in shreveport but yeah. i knew that though i knew the way it, it infected it impacted them seeing all the images on tv seeing yeah. i mean the superdome seeing right. seeing black folks you know on the tops of, of roots with F sos um, yeah. people asking for water and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Like I knew that that stuff was hitting me hard and mm -hmm. I knew that I wanted to be able to share that with my students. And so, mm -hmm. um, that social content was mm. what I knew would, would be my first, you know, conversations in class. And, yeah. and that happened over the course of like the, the first, like the last like 24 to 48 hours before I stepped in my classroom for the first right. time. Right. I heard you talk about, um, another moment of having this realization in front of your class. Like when you, you were talking about uh, noticing your privilege and noticing the ways that you had been privileged even as a black man, right? Because the narrative is always that uh, we take a lot of slights and we absolutely do, yeah. but we also have a certain amount of privilege. Everybody does. How do you, or how did you navigate having a real time experience in front of your class? And would you suggest doing it again? Yeah. I, 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 if I, if that opportunity presented itself again, um, in that same way, I, I don't think that I would handle any, any differently. Okay. Yeah. I think one of the things that allows me to be a, uh, a pretty good educator, whether it's for history or anything right. else, is the fact that I'm willing to be open yeah. and, uh, my students know what they're getting when, when they step in the classroom and, yeah. and I ask for them to be authentic, but I can only ask them to do that if I'm willing to do it myself. Absolutely. And, uh, when it comes to history, like I, I ask them to feel history, not, not to learn it. Right. Not to be educated by it, but to actually feel it right. like learning, learning about the history of this world and learning in particular about the history of this country. Like 
I tell them, and I tell their parents too, like it should piss you off. Right. The, the, this isn't a fairy tale. This isn't this. Sh- we should not have to tell stories of triumph and everything else because when we're looking at that, what we're basically doing is that that we are we're celebrating people that had to get over tragedy and mm-hmm. get over trauma mm-hmm. that could have been and should have been avoided. Yeah. And to me, like that stuff shouldn't be celebrated. We should learn right. from it. It should make you a bit upset. And then after that, it hopefully should motivate you to go out in the world and do something better in order to change that. Right. Um, right. And, and so that's one of the things that I, I try to get from that. I try to give them. But I think that when it comes to even that situation in and of itself, like I've I've broken down in class. I've mm. cried. Um, you know, I, I don't police what my what my students say as far as language wise and all right. that other stuff. Like I right. want them to write and say what they feel. Yeah. As long as they're not doing it at somebody else, then, yeah. then we're good. But if they're doing it, you know, at the book, yeah. at history, at an event, you know, at a historical figure. Yeah. I mean, go for it. Yeah. Have, have at it. See, I feel that my thing is like. I've had moments where I'm I'm realizing something in real time with my students. My only hesitation with that comes when I can't reproduce that moment or when I don't feel like I don't feel like I've closed that off well, right? Cuz I feel like as as their teacher, I'm supposed to be farther along in this thought process than you are. I don't necessarily always have to be farther along in it. You might surpass me. In fact, if I do my job well, you will surpass yes. me, right? But I do need to be out in front of you so that I can kind of lead you down this proper thought thought train, right? When I started teaching, I was not, I never thought I was going to be a teacher from five years old um, or fifth grade. Uh, so when I started teaching, one of the crucial mistakes that I used to make is I would read the book at the same time as I was teaching it. I might be a chapter ahead on a great day, Yeah. right? <laughs> but sometimes I'm reading that book with them and uh one of the jokes i used to tell my students is i haven't read this book like what do you think like i'm teaching you the skill of how to read a book i'm not reading the book with you um i don't do it anymore i've yeah. I've learned to do it a little <laughs> bit better but how do you how do you kind of have that conversation with yourself about the things that you need to have before you walk into class versus the things that eh, you get me in a good conversation i can figure this out with you like how do you how do you find that balance for yourself in your lesson planning i think that all takes time Okay. Um, one of the things that like I I read Malcolm Gladwell for better or for worse. I mean, yeah. I know that he's got his 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 own issues and those sorts of things that we yeah. can talk about yeah. at another yeah. time. Yeah. But one of the the books that that I read was Outliers, and mm-hmm. it made a lot of sense. I had a whole idea of like ten thousand hours to become a master, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what it takes. I mean, and now me being in education and teaching for God twenty twenty one years now. Yeah. Um. I would like to feel that I'm kind of like a, a master two times over. Yeah. But it's taken time in order to do that. So there are going to be certain, you know, areas of, of teaching in which, you know, I'm still getting used to and, and may yeah. not be may not have a whole lot of experience in. Yeah. But because I have other experiences that, that may have something to do with it, it allows me to um, kind of be good on the spot for kids when they yeah. ask something or when we're talking about a new concept or when something comes up that may be challenging. Um, and also, I think a part of it is just being ourselves and authentic and knowing that like we would like to be farther ahead so that way we mm-hmm. can teach kids and, and, and keep them in and, and mold them in ways that, that are healthy and safe. But then also know that we are humans and that's not always going right. to be the case. And right. for them, like I don't mind them seeing that because I don't want them to ever think that, you know, Leo's always got his, his stuff together. Right. Like every day has got to be a perfect day. Like we've all got our good, bad, good days and bad days. Right. And you know, they've got them too. And I just try to tell them that like, on our, be- on our on our worst days, still let's try to do something to still make ourselves productive. Right. Let's just make sure that today's not a loss. Right. Sometimes we have to fight to make it even. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have to fight really hard just to get ahead a step. Yeah. But as long as we can do that, we're still moving someplace forward. Right. And, right. and so uh, 
that's how I try to convey that to them. And um, I mean, we would like to always be steps ahead. Mm -hmm. It's just not always possible. And, right. and sometimes questions pop up. Sometimes you show something on, on, on the screen and you didn't expect it to hit you the way that it did. Yeah. Even when you watched it at home ahead of time, hopefully yeah. it didn't hit you that way. But in the class, in that moment, uh, a student makes a comment, a student asks a question, mm -hmm. and that's something that you didn't always anticipate because we can't. And that's one of the right. great things about teaching is that like when you when you allow students to help lead the class mm -hmm. and you allow them to, to feel free to, to ask questions and mm -hmm. answer them, you know, they're going to say some of the, the damnedest things. And damnedest sometimes that stuff yeah. is pretty ridiculous and yeah. hilarious. And other times it's really deeply profound. Yes. And um, yes, like I, I had a student ask me what the video that we're watching, even now, like that video is, if you go back and look at it, like it's still, it's still like a problematic video. So uh -huh. one where um, the educators got all those kids lined up outside on the grass. Yeah. Ask them like, take a step forward if you do this. Take a step forward if you do that. That video pisses me off. Yeah, pisses yeah. me off. It and it the the I'll let you finish the explanation. I'll tell you why it pisses me off. Keep going. Yeah, and, and in that moment, like I thought it was a good video to go ahead and show a lot yeah. of these like privileged white kids. But like going back and looking at that now, like dude, that shit is problematic. Yeah. And so uh, even in that moment, like I had a student like ask me like, in what ways do you see privilege? Mm. And, and as a black man, like. It, it hit me like, yeah, I have it within my own family. Right. And like I, I am the youngest of five. Um, my, my dad met my mom when, you know, she was a single mother of, of four. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they hit it off and ended up having me. But I knew that I lived a much different life as a kid and as a teenager mm. than my siblings did only have my mom at home. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that that plays a lot into some of the, the relationships that I have with my siblings. Yeah. I think that there is a, a lot of love there, but there's also a lot of animosity, a lot of resentment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of them thinking that like, I didn't have it as tough. So like, yeah. you know, of course you are really successful. I mean, as really successful anybody can actually be. Yeah. And um, like in that moment, like all those things kind of hit me that I didn't really anticipate on. And so right. like it, uh, it got me. So you realize that in front of your students, but did you, as you were coming up, right? Do you think you were exploiting that privilege? Do you think you were just blind to it and using it when you used it and whatever? Or do you think, like, was there some unintentional intent behind how you navigated your privilege as you grew? I guess I don't think I saw it. Okay. Um, I think that, like, whenever I got into conversations or disagreements with my siblings and they brought stuff up, yeah. um, I always kind of looked at it as like, well, you know, I worked hard for it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I got stuff. I got shoes from mom and dad because, you know, mm -hmm. I didn't give me any trouble. Mm -hmm. Like they knew where I was mm -hmm. going to be. Um, you know, nobody was calling home saying, hey, like this is what your son did. Yeah. Or, you know, you've got bad grades or it wasn't the cops or whatever else. Um, and so to me, like I looked at that as like, well, I earned it. I earned right. the shoes. I earned the privilege. I earned the, the, the car at 15, 16, 17 years old. Mm -hmm. I, I earned my driver's license. Mm -hmm. I earned getting into college. I've earned all the good things that happened to me. And yeah. I had, I didn't really ever think about the, the part that luck plays in that. Mm. Like all the, all the instances that I've had, whether it was, you know, in high school, you know, in college, right. um, interactions with authorities, interactions with the police, interactions with, with, uh, with different teachers and professors, stuff like that. Like right. some of those encounters, like I was lucky to get through. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, I have to say that I've, I'm lucky to survive tons of different interactions I've had with cops. Because yeah. like when cops would pull me over, like I was pissed. Yeah. Because I knew it wasn't for anything that I was actually doing. It wasn't actually for speeding. Like right. I've gotten a speeding ticket for going four miles over the speed limit just right. because they needed to get me for something. Right. But it was always, you know, um, do you have any warrants? Can I check your cars? Yeah. And me doing that, like I had to learn 
what I could and could not say. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I had to learn my rights. Mm-hmm. And me basically throwing my rights back at them, mm-hmm. I mean, was dangerous. Yeah, very. Like, me going out there and being a smart ass every time they pulled me over did not do me any favors. And right. I got lucky to walk away from those encounters. Right. And, and there was luck that plays a part in, in all of my life. And I yeah. think that's a part of know the black experience in america like even even the mm-hmm. black folks that are mm-hmm. moderately successful mm-hmm. it's not just from hard work it's yeah. not just from you doing your thing it, right. it comes from luck because at absolutely. any point in time this all could have taken it could be taken away from us absolutely i was just telling my students the other day and it was it was kind of it was a real moment for me because i do this thing at the end of class at the end of some classes i say um ask me five questions whatever you want don't care about just to get that that buy-in back because mm-hmm. i'm sure you've been in class where you know we we started off great the energy was high and now you know we're getting towards the end of it people looking at the clock whatever i hate that feeling so i'll just i'll just cut off what we're doing i'll wrap it up and i'll be like all right give me a couple questions one kid asked me what like what was something traumatizing that you remember from your childhood and i remembered it instantly because of that idea of luck and i remember um I had found out that one of my one of my close friends died when I was mm, I was in elementary school. I grew up in Brooklyn. Right. And he died from uh, uh, incidental shot. Like nobody was shooting at him, but they were shooting around him and they shot him. And I remember thinking that, like, I could have been right next to him. In fact, more often than not, I am right next to him. We go to the park together. We play basketball together. I see him all the time. And so the fact that I wasn't was just kind of dumb luck. It was just the circumstances of what of what happened. And I think about that often when we think about privilege, how much of it ties into luck. I'm going to take to somewhere you're not expecting. Because you brought up uh, a couple of different things that kind of speak to your mindset as you grew up and the mindset that you walk into a classroom with. And this idea of mastery as well, to have like this grace for the process and this appreciation for getting 1% better kind of every day, every time. When I hear that, I think of athletics. Mm-hmm. And I know that you were a college athlete and an athlete all, all your academic life. To what extent do you feel like athletics prepared you for success as a teacher? Um, I mean, it's a good question. I, I, I love it. And I think that athletics played a major part. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, I mean, even going back to me as, as a kid, like I, I played sports from the time that I was five up until I was, God, 19, 20 or, mm-hmm. or whatever. And um, I mean, my parents were a pretty big influence in that, that they took time out of their days after work or whatever else to, to volunteer to coach mm-hmm. or to help run like the, the tackle football organization that I was a part of. Um, and even within that, like I was the youngest of five, but like my four older siblings are like really, they're, they're a lot older than I am. Like okay. my closest sister is nine and a half years older than okay. I am. All the way to my oldest sister, who is 15, 16 years older than I gotcha. am. Gotcha. Okay. So, like, as I was growing up, like, even though I was the youngest of five, in a lot of ways, I almost grew up as an only child. Mm. And so, um, that idea of them getting me into sports was one, like, I, I liked it and I was fairly athletic and thought that I would be okay. Right. But I think another reason why they did is because it gave me an opportunity to, to be with kids that were my own age. Mm. And so, like, Friday nights ahead of, like, Saturday morning football games, like, my house was a house that, like, four or five kids would come over and hang That's out dope. with because, like, my parents had the the big sports van. Yeah. My dad was a coach. My mom was a team manager. Mm, okay. And so they were out there doing their thing every day and, and, and on Saturdays with us. And so four or five friends would come over and hang out Friday night. We would, you know, 
eat pizza, watch a, a movie or something like that, yeah. play Nintendo, and then go to sleep super late, wake up in three hours, go out there, play a game, whoop some ass, and come on back and yeah. do our thing. Yeah. And uh, I really do think that that had a really big part in me deciding to become a teacher because I saw the commitment that like my adult parents made towards mm -hmm. kids. Mm -hmm. And I love that aspect. And as I got older... Like, even when I was in elementary school, or even when I was in middle school and high school, like, I would always try to find ways to give back to that same organization. Right. Whether it was me learning how to coach, whether it was me just out there supporting kids or whatnot. And that's what kind of gave me that love for it. Gotcha. And uh, I really do think that my parents played a, a major part in that. And just sports in general, with the idea of teamwork yep. and, and commitment yep. and dedication, um, the intensity and the passion for it. Because outside of playing sports, in my normal everyday life growing up, I was, and still am, like, I'm shy. <laughs> um, quiet for the most part. I'm pretty reserved. I don't say much or do much. Yeah. You, but, you know, like out on the field, like a whole nother side of me came out. Right. And uh, right. I kind of embraced that and I liked that. And yeah. it was uh, it, it was always something interesting for, for people that, that knew me in one space to go out there and see me in that other space and mm -hmm. see what a different person I became. Mm -hmm. And um, so you never had the, the league dream. You never wanted to go all the way. Um, no, not really. I mean, I, I always knew that, like, my career was going to end at some point in time, and I didn't right. think that it was going to end up in the NFL, getting drafted, yeah. or any, any, any stuff like that. Like, I had an older brother and some older cousins that, that played D1, yeah. and, you know, they had aspirations. They asked some tryouts. They, they did some um, Canadian Football League, Arena Football League, stuff right. like that, but well, I didn't really see that as my journey. I, I, just, I knew that I had a finite amount of time to, to play, and so I did, and, um, you know, I always thought that teaching was going to be my yeah. career and my move, and... <laughs> I mean, my, my career in, in college ended earlier with a couple of injuries. And so, okay. like, I, I knew that part, too. But okay. even just a life of a student athlete, I mean, yeah. and, and you know the same thing, too, that, right. like, there isn't a whole lot of opportunity to actually be that student part. True. Like, we don't get there a whole lot that. of time to do any of the, you know, the, the extra study sessions mm -hmm. to go to some of the, the other mm -hmm. discussions and things like that. And right. those are parts of of that aspect that I missed. True. Like, I mean, our, our days are busy from sunup to sundown. True. So there was a class called it was just called time. And I was fascinated by it, but I could never take it because it met from four to six in the fall. Uh, I don't I don't have those hours. <laughs> those hours don't exist for me. Right. But I will I will also say I was always a better student in football season just because, like, there were no options on when I could do things. Yeah. This is a window that you have to do homework. If you don't do homework now, like the next thing you're doing is going to lead you. And the next thing you're doing is going to lead you in the class. And so it's now or never. And um I know that that football helped me out a lot of, in a lot of ways. I also know that the dream that I had of getting to the league or, or football paying for me to buy a house for my mother or whatever was what pushed me through a lot of those workouts. So I'm interested in the transition that you make from high school sports to being at UCLA playing football. What like what kept you in it through all the the not not greatest times of, of football and the the group and grind that is being a student athlete what what gave you that motivation to get through all that when you knew man eh, it was gonna be over at some point um being competitive okay knowing that i didn't want to just like step away or have people think that i just couldn't do it yeah so when you see everybody else doing the same thing you're doing right you don't get an opportunity to feel sorry for yourself to feel bad to uh, slack off because you know that everybody else in your position group, everybody else on your squad is doing the same thing. Right. Um, also, I think a part of it was also like the, the fear of not wanting to let, you know, my parents down. Mm -hmm. I mean, going to college is a big thing. Yeah. And, sure. um, you know, going to a big school is, is another thing in and of itself. And um, 
I felt like I had them to uh, to to make sure that they were proud of me and made mm-hmm. sure that I was always doing the thing that I needed to, to get done. Yeah. And um, I couldn't see myself going back to them and saying, hey, I didn't finish or, hey, it got too hard. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, and for our entire lives, I mean, we grew up playing sports and right. having to go to school. So, like, this is stuff that we were used to. Right. Maybe to not this extent and maybe to not this intensity, but, like, our bodies and our minds were already formulated and formed mm-hmm. with the same aspect and same idea. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it was, you know, right after school, having to get all of our homework done because we had practice in the evening. Right. Or whether it was in high school, you know, having practice right after school and coming home after that in the evening to do our homework, even right. though we were dead tired. Like, we were always in that mindset. And to me, it was just a, a kind of a continuation of that. But I also knew that I I couldn't let them down. I couldn't let myself down. Yeah. And uh, I knew that I couldn't get to where I wanted to get to, which is teaching, without having that degree anyways. And mm-hmm. so that was a part of the motivating factors for me, too. I like that. I like that. So when we transition into your first years as an uh, educator, right, you said you started out as an AD? Yeah. That was your first job as an AD? Um, my first job, like about six months before that, I was, you know, doing like part-time coaching at the school. Okay. Um, along with like, um, yard supervision and stuff like that. I was finishing up my, my degree at UCLA. Um, and honestly, like I even got the job by accident. Like I, (laughs) I'd already hurt myself. Career was done for the most part. I knew that I, I, I didn't really want to play anymore after that. Like I didn't want to have to deal with the, the ideas of rehab and everything else. Like it was just, it was a grind and Mm -hmm. it was grueling. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I just didn't want to do it. And like my sister got tired of seeing me sitting at home every day, like after class yeah. and everything else. And so my mom and her had a conversation and my mom told her, like, look, like you need to find something for your brother to do. Like he just can't keep sitting here doing this. And right. so she had one of her best friends was uh, a coach at a private school. OK. And so she called him up and said, hey, are there any job openings at your school? Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, I don't think there's any job openings here. He was like, but like there was a part of like a big network of schools that were yeah. like maybe seven or eight of them. And he was like, but I think there might be one opening up um, at another spot. So let me just go ahead and make a call and see. Yeah. And so come to find out there was, but it was like part-time coaching and it okay. was like calling names after school and yard supervision. And so she came back and said, Hey, like I've got like a part-time job for you. Like it's not going to interfere with school or anything like that. Right. She was like, but you need to get up and you need to go do something. Okay. And so uh, I called down to the school. Uh, the lady, her name was, was Beverly Snelling. And um, she, <laughs> answered the phone and said, hey, come on in for an interview, you know, tomorrow. Does like three o'clock work. And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, sure. Put on a shirt and tie, whatever else. I can't even remember the last time I'd even put on one of those. <laughs> um, and as soon as I walked in the door, um, she basically looked at me and said, her only question was, when can you start? Oh, okay. <clears throat> and I said, um, I think I could probably start today. She was like, all right, go home. Uh, put on a pair of shorts and a shirt. When you come here, I'll give you a new shirt. Yeah. We'll start to fill out the paperwork today after work, and uh, we'll go from there. That's awesome. And, um, that's kind of how it happened. And then from there, like that school ended up closing mm-hmm. like six months later. And um, I was finishing up my degree and uh, the athletic director job opened up at, a, at another one of those same schools. Yeah. And um, I applied for it and I originally didn't get it. They yeah. were going to they were going to stick with the same guy that they had already had. Yeah. And then he decided to kind of walk away from it a couple months into the school year. Yeah. And so they called me back up and said, hey, do you want it? And I said, yeah. And mm. I just kind of it just kind of went from there. And I didn't have any experience. I mean. I'd done some little coaching here and there, right. but they knew that I was an athlete. They knew that I was finishing up my degree and they figured that anything that I could learn, I could just learn on the job, but I right. was already a company person. So they already kind of knew the lay of the land and it, it went from there. That's awesome. Is this also your introduction into private schools or yes. did you go to private school? No, I, I went to uh, public schools my entire life from, okay. from pre-K to 12th grade and then obviously into, into undergrad too. 
But um, a lot of the schools that I went to, even though they were public, they yeah. were in, you know, wider neighborhoods. And gotcha. so I was gotcha. I went to PWIs my entire life. Mm. Um, and that only happened because I had an aunt and uncle that um, lived in a predominantly white neighborhood. Okay. Like, aunt was a banker. Yeah. Uh, uncle was a was a dentist. Yeah. And that sort of thing. And so, like, I was able to use their address in order to go to these schools. And um, it gave me a uh, an experience and an education mm-hmm. that I wouldn't have got otherwise. And not just, like school education, but yeah. like social education too. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, you're a history teacher and now on, on kind of not the back end of your journey, but you're at a different point than you had been before. You're not, you're not uh, with the same mentality that you had as a high school student, right? When you're a student in a PWI versus who I see now as like this proud black man who teaches his history class, the unadulterated truth of the situation, right? The unapologetic truth, as you call it, right? When did that manifest for you? When did it, when did you get to the point of not shying away from your blackness, not making excuses for your blackness, but owning it and taking pride in it because it, it's what's dope about you, you know? Yeah. It was, a. It's been a gradual journey with some with some different parts of it that that definitely kind of sped up the de- the growth and development mm-hmm. of that. Um, again, like going back to twenty five and being stepping into my first history classroom. At that point in time, when I was twenty five, um, at Cornrows. Okay. And so I'd had them for maybe a couple of years, and I I had them even though I was athletic director. I knew that certain people around my campus weren't exactly fond of them. Yeah. But they were okay with it. Like, what the hell were they really going to say or do? Yeah. But um, about a month or two into um, into teaching, um. My campus director kind of called me in and um, talked about like, you know, appearance and how that matters and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I, w- I had already started maybe thinking about the idea of, of cutting my hair, but I wasn't totally sure. Yeah. And then I, I, I kind of felt the the, the urge or, or the push that if that if I didn't cut my hair, that this experiment that I had being a teacher might be short lived. Mm, okay. And so uh, I remember going into into my barber shop and and you know unbraiding it and. Uh, getting my hair cut mm. and i remember not feeling great after that ah uh, okay and, you uh, felt that immediately yeah yeah and i didn't think that i would feel that i thought that i was okay with it and like you know it's just hair it's not a big deal right um but i knew in that moment that it was something it was something different yeah that it was something that was about my identity and not even just like my, my social identity for the world for all black folks but i know that for me personally that's what it was right and um it didn't sit well with me and I didn't feel good about it afterwards. And so in other ways, like I, I grew up my hair here and there, but never to the extent of, 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 you know, braiding it or anything like that. Yeah. And so that was one instance that, that kind of helped me further along that, that path of, mm-hmm. of accepting my blackness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think another part of it was starting to move away from using textbooks mm. and like, and being able to create my own curriculum, yeah. uh, being able to, to read other writings in order and, and, and yep. other books in order to kind of put together my curriculum yep. and, and learning from them yep. in a way that like no history textbook could actually teach me. Mm. And so uh, are yeah. you against uh, using textbooks period? Or are you against the textbooks that we had? Like, do we need to create new textbooks or do we need a new way of doing things that doesn't center a textbook? I would love to find, I, I mean, the easy answer would be get rid of the textbooks that we have and mm-hmm. create more textbooks. Mm-hmm. But we also have to understand the politics that are going to go into that. I mean, right. it's not a coincidence right. that most of the textbooks that are made are made in Texas and, yeah. and 
you know, that whole idea in the first place. Yep. Um, and so I can only imagine the different iterations of what a textbook would have to go through and the changes it would have to in order to mm-hmm. be accepted by, mm-hmm. you know, school districts in America at large. Right. And so whatever we started off with, I know that it would be cut down and whittled away to something that was more close to what it is today than right. anything more radical than what we think it could be. Right. So, I mean, in, in, a, in a more complex term, it would be to get rid of textbooks mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. allow teachers that to go out there and, and do their own learning and create curriculums. It doesn't mean they have to do it by themselves, but right. at least we should have a framework and, and certain right. things that we should teach. And um, there's tons of other books out there that, that we can use. And I know that for me, like we use um, Howard Zinn's A Young People's History of the United States. Okay. And it's small enough. The chapters aren't really aren't really big. Yeah. But in that way, like it allows us to have conversations, to mm-hmm. formulate our own questions. We don't have to look for vocabulary yeah. um, or anything like that. And it also allows the kids to go out there and, and do history, to research it and yeah. figure out their own answers, mm-hmm. figure out their own whys um, and, and go from there. And so to me, like, I, I mean, I think textbooks have done more harm than good. Yeah. Um, it would be nice if we could get rid of them. But I also know that most teachers can't. Yeah. And so uh, I know that even as I was on that journey, with textbooks, I began to take kids and, and have them basically use a pencil and we would go ahead and read through chapters or sections. Uh-huh. And after that, we do research mm-hmm. and then everything that they found that contradicted anything that, that they read in their book, yeah. we'd go ahead and, and line it out. Mm. And so by the end of the year, like their, their textbooks looked like redacted FBI files <laughs> and, and, and it was fun. I right. mean, and so that was a way that we got around it. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad that at the school that I'm at now that I'm able to create my own curriculum. I could use a textbook, a textbook if I wanted to, but I've decided to, to go against that for years. And um, I really do think that it has not only helped me as an educator, yeah. but I think it's helped, you know, the students as they grow into, you know, young people and yeah. move forward. And it's helped their parents, too. Every time I hear you talk about your classroom, I, I imagine these students who are, like, super interested and, in, like, intrinsically motivated to dig through this history. They're just like, uh, uh, they call you Leo, by the way. Yeah. How does that, How is that? Wait, I'm, I'm going to come back <laughs> to this point. I'm going to put a pin in it. Are you really okay with them just calling you Leo? <laughs> And have you always been? No. I mean, my first, up until I got to this school, what, I mean, six years ago, like, throughout my entire life, like, I was either Coach Glazé, Mr. Glazé, yeah. whether I was an athletic director or a teacher or a combination of both. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I have years where kids didn't even know my first name, where they would, hey, like, what is your first name? Like, my first name is Mr. My first right. name is Coach. Right. My last name is Glazé. Like, that's it. Like, right. until you know me outside of this setting, like, that's my name. You don't exactly. even know my first name. Exactly. But I also knew that, like, coming into this job, which was a, a more progressive school, like, they called everybody by their first name. Right. And, and there is something to be said for, for one, allowing kids to not always have to feel that weight of authority. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, like, I talk to them about, too. Like, y'all shouldn't be afraid mm-hmm. when, you know, people of authority ask you questions. Yeah. You don't always have to, like, immediately give that respect if you're not getting it in return. Right. Even when it comes to you, like, going to the dentist or going to the doctor's office. Like, y'all should have your own set of questions right. that you're asking them, too, because this is your body. That is your mouth. And you should have autonomy over that and not just take whatever they tell you as the gospel. But ask questions True. about your body because nobody knows your body the way that you do. True. So whether they've gone to school, they've been doing this for 30 years or not, like that's your body and it's unique to you. True. So, you know, take authority in that. And even aside from just like your adults or your your, your home adults or your parents in the room with you, like they're going to have certain questions they're going to ask too. But you all should have questions that you need to ask as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then there's also the other part of it of, of like a school filled with mostly, you know, privileged white kids yeah. calling a, a grown black man by his first name. Yes. Like there, there is something historical that goes along with that too. Yes. Something. And so like there is, there is that balance and, and it's, it's, it's something that I think about often. I, I think about true. often just driving into, you know, a private school and like the reason why these were set up in the first place. And the fact that yep. I'm, I'm walking into one that I get paid to do this, yep. that I'm pretty good at it. 
but I can't do my job as effectively as I would like to if I don't at least think about those things and recognize them in the first place. Yeah, that's true. And and that, that perspective definitely helps. I just remember like being being Mr. Rivers, being Coach Rivers, who are two different people for me, by the way. But that, that always allowed me to kind of enter this headspace of actually being that teacher, actually being that coach. If you just hold off, Jacob, like it hits me in a different way. And the response that I give to you might not be the response I want to give to my student. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, going back to, to this point, I, they, uh, your students always seem like, like they're chomping at the bit to learn something new about history. What do you say to a student, or, or maybe this happens, you have a, a way of doing this every year. What do you say to a student that doesn't see the value immediately in history, who says, eh, this is it's just annoying me. Like, why do I need to learn this? I wasn't a very good history student, but, like, I realized the fault in that. Like, I wish I could go back to those classes now, but it, it never made sense for me, right? And I never saw how this story, which was was polluted by white supremacist capitalist patriarchy and a whole bunch of things that were targeted at me that I didn't really understand at the time. But I never, I never was excited about history class ever. How do you get students to be excited about history in 2021? You know, um, 22. Oh yeah. 22. Yeah. Happy New Year. I, I actually think it's a lot easier now than it was when I started, I mean, teaching history. And then even when I started working at this school six years ago and teaching mm-hmm. there, it's gotten a lot easier now. Unfortunately, it's gotten a lot easier because of experience. Okay. Like, they've now seen, you know, the summer of 2020. They've yep. now seen George Floyd. They've seen Black Lives Matter protests. Yep. We've talked about Trayvon Martin and Eric Garner and, you know, Sandra Bland and, and people like that moving forward. And so they now see why we need to talk about these certain things. So for them, like, it now makes sense. Mm-hmm. Before that, it was a bit more interesting to get buy-in. And that's because, I mean, a lot of kids have a, a not-so-great connotation and connection with history because to them like they've only learned history through the context of you know a teacher at the board writing notes down right them reading it out of a textbook them having to memorize things in order to take a test and they think that they're memorizing in order to take that test are pretty mundane pretty basic and there's nothing exciting about it right um but i think a a part of what i I try to do is is one um i try to make it interesting by by bringing in different perspectives Mm -hmm. again by not using a history book Mm -hmm. um two i also allow them to you know formulate their own questions so when Mm -hmm. it comes to after when it comes to us finishing up a chapter and they've got to write down three or four or five questions that they think the author left out or think that they might want to learn more about like they formulate those and after that now that you were curious enough to to ask those questions Mm -hmm. go out there and go find that answer Mm -hmm. and then share with us and see what see what we have and from that like it creates a whole new world of possibilities Mm -hmm. in education that you know, they didn't necessarily have access to before. Um, right. I want history for them to be dynamic and not static uh-huh. because history is always changing. Right. We're learning new things about history and uncovering things all the time. Right. Um, sure, all the basics, the, the who, the what, and the where right. normally never change, but the why and the how change all the time. Absolutely. Um, and that's something that I try to get through to them as well. Um, I'd also say that, that when it comes to it, it it's also a journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I get these kids in seventh and eighth grade, so I get them for two years. Mm-hmm. And so I basically get them for 80 weeks. And I know that, like, starting off on week one, yeah. hopefully week one looks a, lo- a whole lot different than what week 80 looks like. Absolutely. And so I know that there's got to be a bit of a journey there, that there's going to be certain things that they may not be interested in. Right. And that's okay. Right. Um, but my job for them is not to make them, you know, better students. I just want to try to make them a little bit of a better person than they were than, than when they walked mm. in. And if I can do that part, if I can get them to – to see no, no matter what kid it is, yeah. to, to see, you know, their, their past of their own privilege right. and their, their past of, of their own, you know, um, you know, 
places in which they are not always very privileged, then, you know, I think that I've done a decent job. Yep. And I think a part of me yep. teaching them history was also me um, thinking about how I learned history. And okay. I learned it in some of the old archaic ways that, like, history teachers taught it. I just happened to like history. And so to me, gotcha. that wasn't a, a big thing. But I didn't have any great and wonderful, amazing history teachers. Yeah. Um, I just loved the content. Yeah, except for my, except for yeah, my fifth yeah. grade one. Even still, like, he was a general teacher. He yeah. just happened to like history. Gotcha. But, um... Even like in middle school and in high school, like I didn't have any great history teachers at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was all the same stuff over and over again. And, and mm. I would venture to say that like most of the history teachers I had, I didn't like them whatsoever. Mm. So most of me coming into a history classroom to, to teach yeah. has always been a part of me thinking about ha- thinking back to how I learned yeah. and doing everything kind of the opposite of that. Gotcha. Though those teachers didn't teach me anything. They, 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 if anything, they, they taught me how not to do it. Mm, that's exactly the question I was about to ask. Is there a memory that sticks out specifically in your mind of like something you sat in class experienced and said, I would never do that. Oh, or man. even if I could go back, I wish I'd handle that situation differently. Um, <laughs> What's that moment that sticks out for you? I mean, as a student for me, um, and, and any of my best friend could attest to this, like, like we were in a class, it was 11th grade. Um, it must've been like a push or something like that. Mm-hmm. And we had a teacher, his name was Mr. White. Uh-huh. And when I say Mr. White, I mean, it didn't get any wider than Mr. White, <laughs> you know, kind of heavy set dude, yeah. really honorary. had been doing the job for way too long. Yeah. Um, this was also around like the OJ verdict. Okay. So so we had him for class then too, and, and that's a whole other topic yeah. for another day. <laughs> but he used to make us like for a week at a time, for weeks at a time, he give us dozens and dozens of different like key terms that we had to write definitions for. Yeah. And the definitions he wanted were not like one or two sentences. They were like paragraphs for like each person, uh-huh. each term, each concept, you know, um, each event. <clears throat> and we got about halfway through the through the year when we realized there's no way in the world we're turning these in on a Friday and he's giving them back to us on a Monday and saying that we got full credit for him. Right. There's no way in the world he's reading all of this stuff for all one of his, for every right. one of his classes. So what we started doing is that like the very first page and the last couple of uh, the last pages on the back, we would actually do the work. Yeah. But in between, we would literally just fill everything up with like song lyrics or blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and we decided just to kind of go from there. Yeah. And, and from us starting to do it, it kind of grew into other people in the class doing it. Yeah. And finally, like everybody was doing it. It took until like the last couple of weeks before the school year ended before he realized what was happening. Wow. And dude, he hit the roof. <laughs> but by that point it. in time, you couldn't do anything about it. You'd already right. given us full credit and all that stuff. So right. like it was right. more egg on his face than anything else. Absolutely. But I knew that when I walked into becoming a teacher, I didn't ever want to have to mail in assignments like that and right. just give the kids busy work just right. to do it. Right. So I know that like I'm not going to read every single page, but I also know that on every page are certain things that I'm looking for to see Absolutely. mastery, to see content, to Absolutely. see understanding and comprehension. Absolutely. <clears throat> And I knew that I, I did not want to be that teacher. Y'all, right. I'm not right. going to be y'all's Mr. White. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and I tell students that, 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 that story like all the time, especially at the beginning when we're starting to learn about expectations mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Like, yeah, I'm going to read your stuff. Right. I may not read every single word. Right. But you're also not going to be able to pull that off on me either. Absolutely. Never. So, like, I, I'll, I'll be damned. I'm, <laughs> I'm too competitive for that. Very true. And like there's a certain amount of, uh, of pride in teaching. Yeah. Right. And I see pride in that. Uh, this this uh, teacher, Mr. White, wouldn't admit that what he was doing and to make him as angry as it made him. I, I see a lot of pride in that. There's also a pride that makes you a good teacher that says, uh, OK, I'm not going to do that. Like no matter how long it takes me to turn these grades in, I'm going to read these essays. Right. So how do you navigate like that? The ego of teaching, because, again, one of the reasons I asked you about your teachers, your students calling you Leo is because there's a power dynamic that's in teaching. That's very necessary in my mm-hmm. mind, right? Like, 
yeah, we're going to explore these concepts together, but understand that I've, I've like read this book. Like I've thought about this stuff and I'm not bringing it to you because we're literally exploring this. Like I'm bringing it to you for a reason. How do you navigate like that ownership of it versus letting them lead to a certain extent versus like setting that boundary of, okay, yeah, that was a great idea, but it's wrong. Yeah. Um, I think that comes from a lot of curriculum development, mm-hmm. like me having like a, a, an idea of where I want the, the class to go from start to finish um, allows the kids and allows myself to have like these these boundaries and sets and standards that I want them to hit. Yeah. But within each one of those, they ha- also have the opportunity to uh, get creative and explore in different ways. Gotcha. Um, I also think that like when it comes to teaching, you talk about this idea of ego, like I think you, you have to when mm-hmm. you're working with students and, and it really is like in a way, your classroom, mm-hmm. like you can't help but have a bit of an ego. Right. Because guess what? If kids aren't learning in there, if kids are constantly challenging your authority and things like that, like yep. that's going to take a hit and that's going to take its toll. And finally, somebody's going to either have to go in there and say, hey, look, things got to change right. or you got to change. Right. You got to go. Right. It's one of the two. And so uh, I'll be damned if I ever let somebody tell me that that's the way that it's going to be. Like when it comes to any job, like I, I need to quit that job. I don't need to get fired from that right. job. And For so sure. like that's kind of that's kind of the mentality that comes into it as well. Yeah. Um, there's also the fine line between being, you know, authoritarian yeah. and just saying, hey, like this is being things are being ruled with an iron fist. Yep. There's certain things that can be discussed in class and, and, and can be more democratic. Yeah. But there's also that time when you've got to be able to tell them, like, look, like I hear y'all mm-hmm. and, and I understand where y'all might be coming from. Mm-hmm. But these are still certain things that we have to get through because there is a much larger path for you right. set. So right. there might be certain parts of, of U.S. history, ancient history, world history that you think are boring, that you think that we don't need to get through. Right. But we have to do different concepts or, or, or writing and things like that that you may not want to do. Mm-hmm. But you have to if you want to go ahead and move on to high school and be successful, if you right. want to potentially go to college, if you want to and do those, sort, do those sorts of things. Right. And so I'm not here to tell you that you've got to like this. Mm-hmm. But there are certain parts of it that you have to respect and understand that not everything is going to be perfect. Not everything's always going to be fun. Right. You know, we're not always going to laugh and joke in class, even though, like, I love that part of class. Mm-hmm. There's going to be the parts that you you just have to do. And, yeah. that, and that part comes with life and maturity. Yeah. And um, I think in those ways, I'm, I'm able to get them to kind of bind to the idea that like you know sometimes i just have to make that decision right like not everything gets to be a discussion not everything gets to come down to a vote right certain things can yeah but when yeah. when we are allowed to do that in class you also have to understand that me as the adult in this room mm-hmm. because y'all are not 18 19 20 yep. Yep. 30 40 years old yeah that i have a certain experience that y'all don't have that right. like your parents in in this school is trusting me with your education and even more so with your care and your physical mental well-being that these are certain things that just have to happen right and so uh, as long as I tell you all that stuff up front, again, I didn't mean you have to like it, mm-hmm. but you do have to respect it. Mm-hmm. And as long as you can respect it, then guess what? More good things can happen moving forward. But right. if you don't respect that, then that's when we got to really sit down and have a conversation Absolutely. as to what's going on and, and, and how we can, can move on from this in one way or the other. Right. And I think like, those, those boundaries and those standards are really important. Like we, we're not into this conversation about grading at, at this moment, but in a conversation about grading, like that's a standard that we have to hit and we have to set. And we can't just, uh, we can't just explore sometimes. Like sometimes that is the purpose of class yep. where I just want to expose you to this information and see where you take it. Other times I'm trying to get you to a certain understanding that has to be scaffolded in a way and that I've done the work to plan this lesson out so that you can get there. Yes. So don't start going there. Right? Yeah. And, um, just kind of navigating that has always been interesting. And, and it's, it's fascinating to hear you talk about it. Um, this idea of, I, I kind of, oh, here we go. 
So uh, you're talking about privilege, talking about uh, your students' understanding, and talking about setting these boundaries for them, right? As a history teacher, I'm sure it comes up where we start to understand, okay, all people have privilege. Does it ever get to a point where you have, a, have to have a conversation about not all privilege is created equal? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that, that conversation is, is pretty prevalent in class. Like, they're the difference between equal and equity. Right. And so, like, we can't all treat everybody equal. Right. That there is that equity piece in it, which means that, like, you are giving people what they need mm-hmm. in that moment mm-hmm. based off of other circumstances. And what they need might be more or less than what somebody else needs. And right. that, like, we don't get the opportunity to just kind of rest back and say, hey, that's not fair. Like, life ain't meant to be fair. Right. We, we, we can make life more equitable for people right. as long as we understand that and realize that. And understand that you don't need the same type of help that somebody else may need. Mm-hmm. And then you have to be okay with that. And mm-hmm. then you should be okay with that. Yeah. And so yeah. you being at that place where, where you can understand that, where you have an adult in the room that can understand that yeah. and where your other friends are able to, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that I have, like, and it's right above my wall, um, right above my, my clock in my classroom, I have the word Ubuntu. Okay. Um, and it's a South African host word that basically means I am because we are in mm-hmm. humanity. Mm-hmm. And that idea for them that like y'all can't really be at peace and really be happy in this classroom, even as people, if the people around you are suffering. Right. So if that equality, if that fairness leads to your other classmates still suffering because they're still not getting what they need, right? how can you be okay with that? How can you mm. truly be happy when people around you are mm-hmm. still suffering in that way? Yeah. And so the only way that we can actually get there is through equity. We right. can't get there through equality. Right. Um, and, and equality is not really a word that I, I even really use in class a lot because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's hollow. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it doesn't mean what people like for it to mean. Right. And, and, and people use that word and we weaponize it now. And, and people will take MLK's words and weaponize those every yep. single, you know, yep. January 16th or or yep. whatever else. And that's not what it was intended to do. Right. Like if, if we decided to just kind of stop everything right now in our society and say that, hey, you know, black folks and brown folks and white folks and and and. Latinx folks and Asian folks and, and people that are cisgendered and mm-hmm. people that are LGBTQ plus, like we get to just stop everything right here and just move forward in an equal manner. Mm-hmm. We haven't done anything great. All we've done is we've kept those, those same systems and those same decades and centuries yep. of, of oppression. Yep. We've kept them at the same length without ever closing that yep. gap. Yep. And one of the things that really frustrates me in that kind of conversation is when people look at uh, um, a certain moment in 2022 and 2021 and analyze that moment and say, hey, don't make too much out of it. But when you understand that moment under the, the guise of history, like, why wouldn't we freak out at that moment? That moment has has happened over and over again throughout the course of history. I, I, I'm an English teacher. I'm yeah. not a history teacher. So I get to kind of, um, I get to broach a lot of topics that I don't necessarily go fully into. Mm-hmm. And, and it's always a balance for me where... Um, where I have to kind of navigate, am I making too much out of this? Or how do I make it seem like this isn't Mr. Rivers going off on a tangent. This is what it is. Like the, uh, the police killed Fred Hampton because he was this leader and, and drawing those connections has to make it has to be a thing that comes through the content, not through my opinion. Right. But I'm always like thinking in the back of my mind, like, I want you all to know. I want you all to appreciate how this uh, this fits over time. And one of the things that I, I heard you talk about that I loved was uh, the story of Pocahontas and how Disney's presentation of, of Pocahontas was not the actual story and was so far removed from the actual story that it shows us a really interesting thing about power in America 
and about how uh, the way stories are presented to us kind of change the things that we think about. Yeah. Right. And so how do you constantly or how do you give your students this unapologetic truth without <laughs> without hitting them over the head with it every day? You know, sometimes you have to. Yeah. I mean, we we I mean, I don't know how how other people's classes are set up, but I know that for my class, we've got 45 minutes. And then over the course of the pandemic, when we were, you know, remote learning, like sometimes we only had a half hour, 35 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes like I need to, to hit them over the head with the concept just so that way they can begin to get it. Yeah. Because if I try to sit around and wait and try to get them to formulate and kind of poke, poke and prod and, and use a Socratic method in order to get to get to that point, yeah. it might take them a week. Right. It might take them two weeks to get there. Right. At some point in time, like we run into time crunches. And I'm like, look, like this is the concept. I'm going to go ahead and say this like. I am going to say this. I am going to put it into your head because right. like this part needs to be said. Right. And even when we start to examine all these sort of like these events that have happened over the course of the last, you know, 18 months, two and yeah. a half years or whatever else, like I try to tell them also, like there, there are no, you know, coincidences mm -hmm. in, in history. There's only connections. Mm -hmm. The things that we're mm -hmm. seeing now, things mm -hmm. that we've continued to see. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that I try to kind of bring home that concept is by showing them images from like protests of, of the last few years compared to protests of the 1960s, compared mm -hmm. to protests of the 1940s. Mm -hmm. When we talk about Colin Kaepernick, we also talk about Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, and I get to see, mm. have them see like like that that concept of like, he's not the first dude to do that. Right. Okay, and even right. Mahmoud Marouf wasn't the first person to do that right. either. Like, right. we, we've had people protesting the, the, the flag since, you know, the 1910s, the 1920s, right. the 1930s. Like, y'all yeah. aren't the only, they, these, these aren't the only ones. Like, we've seen this over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I either, one, try to show them those images, or two, like, I give them certain names, and I have them go back and look at them to, in order to see, like, why do, you think I have, why do you think I brought that name up to you? How do mm -hmm. you think that connects to what we just talked about? Mm -hmm. So that way they can see that for themselves. Mm. But there are some certain times when I do have to just give it to them flat and give it to them straight. Right. Like, even, I mean, a year ago, as we were watching, you know, January 6th and everything kind of happened on, on unfold mm -hmm. there, like, mm -hmm. we had a day in class already set up. But as that happened, like, I literally just turned my Zoom into CNN or whatever else. And we literally just watched on TV mm. as I'm just narrating and just going off and just kind of talking yeah. about this stuff over and over again. And I'm looking at them and talking to them about the same concepts we've been learning about for the fat for the past, like, four or five months. Yeah. They're all at play right here in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. All this historic entitlement, you know, people wanting to, to believe in, in, I mean, for what you want to call it, fake news and misinformation mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. not learn how to do research. Mm -hmm. This is what happens when you don't do things the way that you're able to. Mm -hmm. This is what, mm -hmm. what historic entitlement gets you this is not one this is what not wanting to talk about you know race and other forms of discrimination right. and sexism and, and and gender classification like this is where this gets you right like right this is what happens and so like in that moment like i had to scrap everything that we were learning and go there and even talking about that i had to connect that to everything we learned in the past mm -hmm. so that way they knew that this wasn't just one incident all by itself right because when they begin to think that, yes. then like you said, like these moments begin to lose their meaning Absolutely. and they begin to lose their weight and they begin to lose their measure. And we just kind of look at them as individuals instead of a part of a much larger scheme. Right. And so uh, in that moment, like there wasn't a whole lot of time for a lot of questions and, and, mm. and, and talking and whatever else. Like it was, you know, me narrating it. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, like it was their parents, like walking back and forth in the, in the Zoom and, and listening right on the edges of the screen to mm -hmm. just kind of hear what I was saying just in mm -hmm. general. And mm -hmm. I knew that they were. Yeah. And I also knew that I had to be honestly as authentic as, as authentic as I could, because literally we saw, we saw white right. folks jumping in and, and, and hopping through the Capitol because they didn't like the results of an election. We'd and, be, we'd be calling them thugs if they were a different race. Exactly. They, they'd be all sorts of names. Yeah. So what happens when you get some type of pushback of, um, 
oh, uh, Leo, the way you said that, I was offended by it, or uh, the school, the, the institution doesn't stand behind you on something that you are, you're clear about. I have been really fortunate with the school that I'm at now, where the uh, where the administration has been really supportive of the ways mm -hmm. in which I teach. Mm -hmm. I know that when I got there, like I told them, even in the interview process, like what I wanted to do with class and and, and how I bring myself into the classroom every single day. Yep. And uh, I remember asking them if they were okay with that, and they said yes. Mm -hmm. And even I remember the first couple of months of of being there. Um, one of the first big um, units and discussions that we had was on 9/11. Yeah. And, and not just like 9-11, like, oh, poor America, mm -hmm. you know, 2,977 people died. It was also our response to 9-11. Right. And, 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 you know, what America did to people that, that even looked Muslim, that mm -hmm. were just dark with a beard, mm -hmm. that, that I wanted them to see. Right. And it was us also hopping on social media to look at other people's stories. It was also um, looking at our response to like the war on terror and what we're doing to, you know, other places in the Middle East that we don't always hear a whole lot about. Yep. And so I, I did get, you know, some emails from parents, you know, asking like, why was that important? Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I normally tend to do now is that I, when I get those sorts of questions, ask those questions back. Yeah. Why, why shouldn't we talk about this? Yeah. Is what I'm saying not true? Is honestly, at the end of the day, is it your kids complaining about what mm -hmm. we're learning or is it y'all hearing what we're learning about and you deciding that this may not be okay for you? Right. And, and once I get into those questions, I find it really easy for, for parents to kind of understand what we're mm -hmm. doing and why. Yeah. And, but that also only comes from the fact that like I also get backing from, from my administration and when they say, you know what, we support what you're teaching yeah. and, and, and we encourage it. And our community is pretty small. We've only got like 340, 350 kids okay. there. So like, Word travels fast. There's a lot of connections that are made between elementary to middle school to high school. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, like other parents that I'd already that, that I'd had and other parents that were supportive. Yeah. yeah, sure. They were talking and maybe they were coming up against a parent that was not really supportive mm -hmm. or not really liking what I was doing. Mm -hmm. But they were getting, um, you know, the perspective of another student who was encouraging what right. I what I liked or, 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 you know, what I was teaching and, and liked how that was done. And in a lot of ways that squelched it, too. And now in year mm. six, um, we have students that that purposely come to middle school because they want that content because, yeah. you know, they want it as authentic as they can get it and as unapologetic as they can get it. Um, I, I like to think that my class operates in ways that are not very common for, for other schools. Right. Um, but that's also part of the draw. Yeah. And um, I get less and less um, parents that, that ask questions. Mm -hmm. um, I think in part because I've got, you know, five or six years there now. Yeah. And also because I'm also pretty blatant and honest. And it doesn't mean that I don't make mistakes because we right. all do. And Everybody we all make missteps. Absolutely. Um, but I also think that they understand that, like, my point of view comes from humanity and especially comes mm -hmm. from my blackness. That, mm -hmm. like, at the end of the day, like, I'm not I'm not a Democrat. I'm right. not a Republican. I'm not an independent. Right. I, I, I'm not really <laughs> appreciative of what Joe Biden does or Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or yep. whatever else. Like. Yep. I'm just me and, yeah. and I can only do what I think is best for myself and for, you know, black folks around us, because at the end of the day, like these systems were created on us yep. That, yep. that were never meant to include us. So, yep. like, I'm not going to jump through hoops for one of these political mm -hmm. parties or not. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways, I mean, my school is very liberal. Yeah. Um, but I think in some ways, you know, they, they do appreciate that. Right. Sure. Like they may like Joe Biden more than they like Donald Trump. And I think that. A lot of people probably would, too. And if I had to pick one, I guess I'd have to go with that guy, too. But uh, let's not think that that dude is, is right. great by himself because he's not. Right. We can talk about 94 crime bills. We can talk about other other stuff. So, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm, you're not mm -hmm. going to get some slanted view of politics in my class. Right. Because to me, it's it's the hell with all of them. 
Throw them all not, out. Not, yeah, exactly. None of them done anything to help me. Throw them all out. It, it, was, it wasn't until I had a daughter that you could convince me to vote. Yeah. Like, I was like, mm, the whole system is rigged. No, whatever. I, I, I tell my students all the time that, like, voting for, for black folks and for marginalized folks, we're talking about black or, or white mm-hmm. or, or, I mean, like, like non-rich white folks and, and people that have been, you know, racialized white folks. Yep. You know, voting for us is a means of self-defense, not a means of progress. Mm. So if you want to go ahead and vote, like, that's great. There's times when I vote, too. Right. Um, I don't know if I'm ever going to vote for a president ever again, to be honest. Like, I'll, I'll, I, I much more rather participate in local p- political yeah. elections because yeah. that's where, like, things really do impact me. Yeah. But, I mean, when we're talking about, you know, Congress, we're talking about the, the presidency and stuff like that, like, Whoever we put up there, like they're not changing the system. We're right. just changing the face on it. So, like, what, what? Yep. In some ways, I can say what difference does it make. But in some ways, like that's also a very privileged stance too. Like, sure. I make a decent sure. amount of money. For sure. The things that he's saying or doing aren't going to impact me the same way that they impact somebody else. So, like, I get that part too. Yeah. Also, understand that like I live in California, which is going to be a, a normally blue state. So, yeah. like, they don't necessarily need my vote in order to, to sway it one way or the other. I don't live in Georgia. Yep. I don't live in Texas. I don't live in Oklahoma. Yep. So for folks like that, I can understand why they do. Yeah. I just know that for me in the situation that I'm in, I don't always necessarily see the point. But right. I also think that, like, especially at my school, I think some parents and, and, and staff and, and kids, you know, they respect that and understand that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I love the way you said that. And I, I like that you uh, fit in that point about um, – students coming to your classroom for that perspective because i think a lot of times it seems like uh the the people with the money in the school all think the same thing and it's all against everything that that we're kind of standing for and fighting for yeah and and don't get it wrong i mean liberalism in and of itself is not always very healthy they can be harmful too like all of that stuff is like so in some ways i mean we're kind of stuck in the middle of trying to go one way Mm -hmm. or the other and I mean, we can see all the downfalls of some of that stuff, too. And again, like when we talk about and examine it, like I'm not using using history to try to get across like some political point for me. Like to me, right. politics is all trash. And I'm just trying to get you all to see that. So that way, when these kids come up, yeah, hopefully they, they can begin to understand this and see this. And if they can be a part of that change moving forward, mm-hmm. then that's great. And I know that I may never actually see that change. Right. My, my kid may never actually see that change. Right. Other kids that, that, that are coming up may not actually see it, but hopefully we're beginning to put the plate, the pieces together mm-hmm. that lead to that progress somewhere down the line. Mm-hmm. And that's all that I can ask for. I advocate for critical thinking. Yeah. However we can get it. All right. So we're going to, we're going to shift to uh, closing this up a little bit. I have a speed round of questions for you. All right. All right. So this is the first answer that kind of comes to your mind. You can give me a little explanation if you have one, if not, it's okay. Um, pens or pencil? Pens. Your most memorable student or most memorable moment with a student? Oh, gosh. Jeez. <laughs> oh, my God. How is that a speed round question? <laughs> um, it'll probably go back to, I believe it was, la- not last year, but the year before that. Um, and she was a student that that's really great. I still talk to her and her family today. Uh, but when it comes to, to students, I mean, she was incredible. Not for all mm-hmm. the, the academic reasons why. Mm-hmm. I mean, work was okay. She could write okay. But like her thought process and her empathy and her compassion was like through the roof. So even as we were in remote learning, like the way that she picked up things, the way that she wanted to stay after class to talk. Yeah. And um, those last couple of days with, with her in class, and that, that would be the last time I'd have her as a student. Like mm-hmm. for us, got really emotional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, we still keep in contact to this day, but she's one of the greatest human beings mm. I've, I've ever met. I and, love that. And I have no problem saying that about a 13 or 14 or 15 year old because she's she's amazing. That's awesome. Graduation always makes me tear. Yeah. We'll get to that later. Um, teaching or coaching? 
teaching because I think coaching is teaching. Hmm. Good answer. Good answer. Spades or chess? <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! I love it. Oh. <laughs> you know, I I love to be able to talk trash when I'm playing spades. It's really hard mm-hmm. to do that playing chess. So I'm gonna go spades. True. 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 Well said. Well said. Uh, whiteboard. Whiteboard versus chalkboard. Oh, whiteboard. Easy. Okay. Uh, lunch or grading papers? Like, do you take the time to have lunch or do you work through your lunch? Oh, no, I have my lunch. I respect mm-hmm. that. That's that's self-care. Um, homework or no homework? I am more no homework now than I've ever been. It doesn't mean that they still don't get homework, but right. like, I, I try to definitely cut it down. And a lot of the homework that they get is either like, hey, we started this in class, finish up at home, or it's them trying to learn about their own histories at home. So, like, I have mm-hmm. them, like, go home and ask you know, home adults questions, ask grandma and grandpa, honor uncle, that sort of thing. I like that. I like that. Um, standardized testing or no standardized testing? No standardized testing. Mm. Are you a printout person or a digital turn-in? Um, if you'd asked me this question anywhere from before March 12th and beyond, it would have been a printout person. But uh-huh. now, like, I'm definitely a, uh, a digital person now. Has- and I, and I probably, I'm probably not going back. I got you. Remote uh, teaching is changing forever, huh? Yeah. The only the only thing that I I really have them try to turn in because I haven't been able to figure out how to do it digitally is um creating maps. Mm, so if anybody okay. knows how to do that part with the, where they can do it digitally, okay. then I I'm I'm all ears. I like that. I like that. Uh, should we still be teaching Shakespeare? Yes, but maybe not as much, and okay. and not to the not to the extent that we always do, and and not also also with the caveat. Also with the caveat that, you know, he's not the only person doing stuff like that. True. True. No, he's not. Uh, we kind of touched on this. Grades or no grades? No grades. Mm, okay. Uh, Tom Holland, Tobey Maguire, Miles Morales, or Andrew Garfield? Who's your Spider-Man? I mean, my Spider-Man is always is, is going to be Miles Morales. It's for all the, the, the close connections that go along with it. If yeah. we're talking about, like, the other mainstream, mainstream yeah. Spider-Man... Um, I know that mine is kind of in the in the minority, but I Andrew Garfield is my favorite like mm, live okay. action Spider Man. Okay, not even close. Not, not even close. E- Tom Holland's overrated. Tobey <laughs> was too old and ridiculous. Okay, but. I didn't see see the movie, but I appreciate that meme reference of them all pointing at each other. Yeah, I, that made me happy from a real place. Uh, okay, and what makes you sign your contract every year? What keeps you going back to to the classroom? Um, I love my job. And not love in a, in a toxic way. Like, I, I have always loved my job, but I, I love the kids. The kids really do buy into stuff that we're learning. They're, they're great for the most part. Their right. parents are really supportive. And then, I mean, you also can't deny the fact that, like, a part of me signing that contract, the fact that I get paid a decent amount of money. Yeah. Like, I, I tell my students, I'm, I think this year I'm at, like, 77, 78,000. Okay. And I don't mind saying that out loud. Like, nice. we, we should, you know, destigmatize the idea of, of sharing salaries and all that other True. stuff. So, like, they know how much I make. And, and I'm cool with that. And, like, that's a part of it, too. Like, the idea that, like, we should always sign the contract because we love what we do mm-hmm. while also being underpaid or being taken advantage of or exploited, like, mm. that's trash. Like, mm. to me, a, a part of this is keeping teachers happy, and a part of that is by paying us what we deserve. And even still, like, no matter what I get paid, I'm probably still underpaid because yep. Yep. I'm sure they're making quite a bit of money off Show of Show me the money. Exactly. Absolutely. What advice would you give to uh, a new teacher of color or a new teacher in, at all? Um... I think one, uh, always kind of keeping like an, an, an internal scorecard of, of who you are and mm-hmm. what you're willing to live with and what you're not. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think one of the, 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 I think one of the downfalls of, of early teachers, and I know I made it myself, was one, you have a bunch of rules. Mm-hmm. 
and a bunch and sometimes like you get all the kids together you you write down a list of like 10 or 12 things that like you don't want them to do mm-hmm. and at the end of the day you have to think about like how many of those are are, are for policing or how many of them are to make them better people mm. and the other part of it is like how many of those are you actually enforcing because right. if you write down 10 or 12 of them but you're only enforcing two or three right then just cut it down to those two or three and, and leave the rest of it for whatever it is but right. i think that the better you're able to to do that part and kind of whittle down all the excess right the more you can concentrate on content and and, and the kids and actually making those connections right the relationship is so important it's critical that that really is the biggest part of teaching mm. well, yeah, this, is, this has been awesome one of the things that uh, kind of inspired me to do this whole thing was the idea that education working the way that it is has never been meant to truly serve the students. No. Right. It's always been some other some other ideas, some adults with some idea that uh, has nothing to do with students in mind. So I think it's revolutionary to be in a classroom, to be talking to educators who are centering students and who are centering uh, the idea of how are my students learning in spite of all the pressures against them. I think the fact that you take that on is what makes you royalty. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. And, and to me, like, I, I, I agree 100%. I, I read somewhere that, like, somebody said that the idea of, of schools was even just to create uh, the new generation of workers. Mm-hmm. And I don't want that for these students. I Absolutely. want them to try to find ways to dismantle and, and get rid of all that stuff so that way we can build something new. And again, it may not happen in my lifetime, but hopefully we are starting to, to kind of plant the seeds that, that allow that part to grow. And uh, I think that's all that we can do moving forward. And I know that we all make our mistakes and, and we're not all perfect, but as long as we're putting our best forward at, foot forward every day, then that's all we can ask for. That's all you can do. And uh, I just want to add value to, to educators to this podcast. So I got you this gift. You can check that out a little bit later. Um, but for people who want to follow you, people who want to uh, get in touch with Leo Glaze, how would they do it? Um, a couple different ways. You can go to my website, um, leoglaze.com, and it's glaze like the donut. Um, <laughs> I also have a Twitter, uh, at I am Leo Glaze. And then um, I guess also my email, which is uh, leoglaze at gmail.com. And uh, hit me up. I'm always interested to, to learn as much from y'all as I can try to help y'all with it as well. And so uh, let's keep the conversation moving and Let's keep helping kids and help help keep uh, you know help this world keep moving forward. Awesome, and uh, find more resources at blackroyaltyed.com. And that does it for this one, Alex. Shut me off. <laughs>